And welcome to Pints and Politics, the June 6th, 2019 edition. Pints and Politics is a bi-weekly discussion program of all things political, coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name's Bill Templeman. This is our third show of the summer season. We'll be on every second Thursday evening from 7 to 8, between now and August 15th. So our next show will be June 20th, then July 4th, and so on. Uh, In addition to the radio show, Pints and Politics is streamed live from the Trent Radio website. We also have a podcast at pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca. The podcast of tonight's show will be uploaded tomorrow around noon. Uh, We post on Twitter, at Bill Temp, and on our new Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. During tonight's program, if you want to ask a question or share a comment, just go to the Trent uh, Radio website, which is www.trentradio.ca, and click on the link halfway down that reads, send the announcers a message right now. Uh, we'll monitor this site during the program and respond to your question or comment if we can on there. All right. So joining me uh, tonight in the studio is our guest panel on the environment as an election issue. We have a naturalist and grad student in sustainability, Dylan. And Radcliffe. We have Green Party candidate for the Peterborough Quartha riding, Brock Grills. We have the CEO of the Green Party Electoral District Association and former candidate uh, Jan Broughton. And we have community builder and environmental activist Ben Wolf. Welcome all. Now, thank you. Now, before we start, there's just a few things. Uh, first of all, there are members of the Green Party in the room. Uh, however, this is not. Uh, a, a Erstats all candidates meeting. We have no other candidates here. This is not so much for party policy per se to tout one party over another as it is for just knowledge of the environment and environmental issues. We'll certainly have the other candidates on or certainly invite them as the campaign unfolds. So two other things. Uh, let's define some terms. On the podcast website, tonight's topic reads, Will the Environment... How will the environment show up in the election campaign? Uh, And by environment, uh, I mean our natural environment, air quality, water quality, biodiversity, global warming and climate change. In other words, the whole ball of wax. Uh, And secondly, I'd like to take uh, just a few minutes to inflict a personal reflection on uh, you, our patient listeners. Uh, Today is the 6th of June, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. It was the main battle of World War II in Western Europe. Now, I was an infant happily in diapers for the last year or so of that war, so I remember nothing. But I was raised by the generation that fought World War II and helped defeat the Nazis. Uh, my father's buddies would come over to our house on Westminster Avenue in Montreal West on weekend afternoons to drink beer, tell stories, and turn the air blue with cigar smoke. My role as a small boy was to fetch large bottles of Dow Ale from the kitchen whenever summoned. They drank their beers at room temperature. Shelf, they called it. Claimed the beer had more flavor that way. It was the British tradition. Only one, an American, preferred his beer cold. While these men hardly ever talked explicitly about their wartime experiences, they left me with the impression that something very significant happened to everyone during the war, and I was just too young to understand. To say that they were nostalgic uh, about the war years would be wrong. The deprivations, the terror, the horrors of war were not experiences they, they were at all sentimental about. But they expressed a longing for that intense focus and sense of purpose that wartime brought to their lives. Their actions mattered, and they had to depend on each other. More than that, they were closer to each other than ever before or since. I recall a discussion on the radio back in the 80s, in which Peter Zosky was interviewing a few Canadian vets of the Vietnam War. Uh, These are Canadians who volunteered with the American forces. One of these men said, said something to the effect of, you know, when people see an old vet on Remembrance Day with tears in his eyes during the playing of the last post, these people may think, oh, he must be remembering friends he lost in the fighting. Well, that might not be it. The old vet might be instead remembering the one time in his life he felt so close to his comrades that he was willing to die for them. Nothing since the war, not even love of family, could compare. There was a deep tribal sense of belonging that peacetime could not provide. I learned from that generation that the war effort meant a sense of intensity to their lives which could never be regained in peacetime. So what? 
So what do these reflections on D-Day have to do with today and today's topics? Are we at war today? Given the relentless flood of grim reports about species extinction, habitat loss, global warming, it's hard not to feel that an unseen war is being waged against us and our time to fight is now. But how to defend ourselves? When they talked about life during World War II, my parents talked about a strong sense of shared mission and of standing shoulder to shoulder with strangers in a common cause to defeat Hitler. What they were doing mattered. Where is that sense of comradeship, of standing together today? So here we are in comfortable Peterborough. Compared to the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, life here is pretty good. Uh, Our community is relatively safe for the most part. While there's homelessness, inequality, in wealth, and certainly there's unemployment, our grocery stores are full of food. Our hospitals and clinics are able to treat patients. Our schools are open. We're not in a war zone. The problem for us today is that our enemy is invisible. The Luftwaffe is not bombing London. Ships are not sinking every day. A huge army invaders is not gathered just across the channel. The threat is an abstraction, something that will happen in the future, but not today or tomorrow. It's too easy to stay asleep in our comfy bubble of temporary security. What we need today is the solidarity of an immense war effort. We need wartime spending and commitment to get off fossil fuels and save our ecosystems. We need inspired international leadership and unity of purpose. Instead, we have the shambolic blathering of Trump and his pretenders. In Canada, we are in the midst of a divisive uh, election campaign in which environment and climate change may well be ignored. Again, or am I wrong? How will the environment show up in this election? Could we start with a bit of background on each of you and your interests in the environment as an issue in the federal election? Who wants to start? I guess I'm holding the mic. <laughs> well, that, that'll do it. Um, so, basically, how I got into... This is Brock. So, way. this is Brock uh, Girls. I'm the Green Party candidate. And how I got into doing this, besides the fact that Jen asked me, <laughs> is... Uh, it, all throughout high school um, and growing up, I was part of uh, nature groups, um, uh, ramblers is what we called it at uh, Holy Cross when I went there. And I think I just took uh, what we have in Canada for granted for so long, uh, going on portaging trips and doing these kinds of things. And I think after the last municipal election and Jackson Park being an issue and some of these other things being an issue... And the IPCC report coming out, that was huge for me. And I think that was huge for a lot of people. Uh, I realized that the time was now. Um, and that's how I got involved in, in, in environmental advocacy. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I like to breathe. <laughs> oh, you're fussy. <laughs> uh, in 2008 or so, I read a book called Seasick about uh, ocean acidification and how the uh, plankton generate 40% of our oxygen. And I went onto the internet and found out that at the top of um, uh, Everest, the amount of oxygen is 12% less than at sea level. So when the ocean goes, we're all gone. So I like to breathe, so I'm doing what I can to uh, preserve that. Um, Dylan. Yeah. Um, so, well, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me here. How how did I get involved in environmental issues? Um, I mean, I feel like it's always been something that's interested me, and it's been a bit of a tortuous path. Like, I always enjoyed getting out in parks and wild spaces and that sort of thing. Um, uh, my education is in uh, environmental technology and watershed management, and I'm currently doing a grad studies and sustainability studies. And uh, I think it's uh, just really, really unfortunate, unfortunate a lot of the things that are happening in, in the world around environmental issues. And uh, I think there's a, I, I think. There's a lot of good stuff happening too, and uh, a lot of positive movement in the last few years, which is really encouraging to see. But uh, Drew Monkman a couple of years ago said uh, that uh, to be a naturalist or to be an environmentalist is a bit of a is a is a uh, um, uh, an adventure in loss or something like that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I I hope to be able to maybe change the 
change that narrative a little bit and uh, and do what I can to support uh, the environment and all the uh, species and plants that we share the earth with. So, yeah, thank you, Ben. Yeah, so uh, the two things I would go to is I got shipped off to a deep wilderness canoeing camp when I was just turned seven years old. It's based in Tomogamy. <laughs> it's called Camp Wanapate. Neither of my parents had any interest in outdoor stuff whatsoever, but somehow they wanted it for us as kids. This is a place that not only had deep environmental values, it involved spending Pretty soon after that, 16 to up to 24 days paddling rivers from source to mouth in the true wilds. And pretty quickly that flipped my worldview to uh, seeing that the way I lived in the rest of the year had something substantially wrong with it as compared to the rightness that I felt in wild places. And then add to that that I had a very unusual high school geography teacher who in 1978, that tells you how old I am, um, used the first serious computer model of um, what was coming as one of our core texts. That's the Limits to Growth Report produced by the Club of Rome. Um, and uh, it projected population, resource use, pollution, uh, energy, and food. And it said social collapse around 2050. Um, and I right. believed it. I took it seriously, um, partly because its fundamental principle was you cannot have infinite growth in a finite world. Um, and so I've been turned on to this ever since. Thank you all. A question. Now, uh, the liberals, the, the federal liberals maintain that we can have economic prosperity while we protect the environment at the same time. Catherine McKenna, Minister of Environment and Climate Change, claims there is no conflict between owning a pipeline and reducing our carbon emissions. What do we think? Can we, I'm doing air quotes here, have it all? Do Dylan. gestures show up on radio? <laughs> yeah, gestures do, but I can't repeat all of them. <laughs> I, I mean... I'm definitely n not a fan of and, and the purchasing of the pipeline. I think that has uh, really backfired in a, in a lot of different ways politically for the Liberals, in spite of it just probably being a pretty boneheaded thing to do as far as a creating a narrative around positive change towards a, a carbon neutral future and so i think i think that uh that's uh, that's uh the statement that we can have our cake and eat it too is uh pretty clear politicking um and I and I can see they've done a lot of damage control around that, um, especially now that it's becoming pretty clear that in the upcoming federal election, we're looking at the environment being one of the top issues uh, for Canadians. Uh, and so uh, I think they're doing a bit of damage control even today around that. And um, that, that all that being said, I, I, I will say that there's been a lot of positive change federally in the in the past few years so credit where credit's due and maybe not necessarily around climate change issues but when you look at things like um progression towards uh protected lands targets and that sort of thing uh that that's something that we just really wouldn't have seen under uh, the previous administration and so recognizing that it, i think is important as well uh there's still a lot of work to do and i still think that uh there's like uh a lot more that can be done and a lot more effort that needs to be put into uh dealing with a lot of these environmental issues but uh i, I think that on the climate change portfolio uh that was a, that was purchasing a pipeline definitely in, at least in my opinion it was not not very bright yeah so i think we can be prosperous and uh ecologically sustainable but that prosperity has to be based on something else so it's not a choice between poverty and uh, like whole society poverty. There's some people who are already and always have been uh, experiencing poverty, but it's not a, a choice between pollution and everybody being without work. It's a choice between uh, getting your jobs out of hurting the environment and getting your jobs out of helping the environment. Right. And 
So that is, in fact, what convinced me to stop hiding in the back rooms of the Green Party where I was handling, <laughs> handling the, the, the bookkeeping yeah. and uh, step up front. Okay. Brock. Um, so I echo a lot of what Jean said there. The reality is, is that there are ways in which we can like finance our our economy by uh, stimulating jobs so like the expression i like to use a lot of people like to talk about the tar sands and things like that and my my response to that and i maybe i'm oversimplifying it but this is i think a good kind of analogy of it is the welder who welds the pipeline can weld the windmill um and the windmill is just an expression of green energy, not necessarily just windmills. So that said, I think that there are ways to get there. Will will there be? Will it be difficult in in certain areas? Yes, but I mean, how many times, time and time again, do conservatives come out and say, "What we, we don't want to leave this debt for our children. We don't want to leave this debt for our children." Um, well, what about the environmental debt that we're leaving our children? And I think if it's going to take extreme uh, environmental austerity coupled with changing the industries that we're in then that's what we need to do for our children yeah and i i agree with all of that i agree with all of that and um as sometimes happens when you invite me on your show bill (laughs) um i've got somewhat of a of a wider view that's a little grimmer than that um and um it relates to the fact that 30 years ago i was involved in the lead-up steps that became Peterborough Greenup. Mm-hmm. At that time, I had chosen to believe that an incremental approach to environmental action was strategically valid and viable, and in time, it would lead to the transformation that we needed. So here's the sobering reality, and this is, for me, the one takeaway fact that stuck with me um, from the litany of them in uh, the Wallace Wells book, The Uninhabitable Earth. Um, 50% of all human CO2 emissions since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution have happened in those 30 years. 50%. So what that means to me is there is no version of a society that looks like this that will survive even one more generation um, and that there is no one in the political arena who is talking about the level of transformation that is required or the extent to which it is required. And I say that even though some of them are naming the actual science-based targets. They just have no realistic way of getting there. And when you have our current government which has in some ways, um, pipelines aside, and that's a devastating error, in some ways been a leader on climate change, they're talking about comfort and jobs for the middle class as their top issue. That's not acceptable. Thank you. Dylan. Yeah, and I just, I, I think something to point out, and I've postulated this before, and I'm just kind of picking up on some of the things that we've talked about, is that... Uh, Canada's got a bit of a problem in the sense that it, uh, we've we've got two provinces that are highly reliant on fossil fuel extraction, and I've and I've postulated before that the term Western alienation is kind of a made in Canada term for the resource curse, and so I think that in order for Canada to have a just transition away from the economy that we currently are in, we really need to have a plan for how are we going to get Alberta and Saskatchewan off of oil and, and and who and who's who's how are we going to do that and i think it's a real problem and uh i don't know if anybody's got a good answer for that you can see uh i've got some there's some members of the green party in here today so maybe they can comment on this but i saw elizabeth may talking last week about um using alberta's oil to transition off of uh oil for canada by refining here it here at home and i i don't know if you guys want to comment on that but uh i think maybe that's one solution i i don't i think if i if i could have it my way we'd be off oil tomorrow but uh i uh i how do we make this a just transition for the people who are heavily reliant on these extractive industries well, there's a hot potato in the studio. Does, does anyone want to pick it up? <laughs> so that's the thing. And, and, and I have, and we as the Green Party across the country have taken some heat for that stance because of the idea that it's not 
immediately shut down the tar sands. And so the reality there is, is that, um, from a financial perspective, just for a minute, um, the reality is with our oil before, our, I think, I believe our 2015 stance was was to open refineries as well and refine our own, but while continuing to take foreign oil as well. But the reality is, is as soon as we get our oil to market, the the <coughs> other countries that have oil are going to flood their our market with their crude oil, and that's just not going to make it like it doesn't make it make sense for us. So the reality is, if we're going to continue having to heat our homes and doing these things and having a negative impact on on uh, CO2 emissions and that sort of things. And we might as well do it uh, using our own oil, getting it off of it as quick as possible. Now, that said... And and this is in our platform as well, or in, it's in Vision Green, I believe. I don't. I'm, actually, I believe it's in Mission Possible as well. But there will always be a small place for the petrochemical industry. There, there are certain things, medical uses, day to day uses, things that plastic has to be used for for one time cases and things like that. So there'll always be a small uh, place for it. But the idea of the Green Party platform is to get off of foreign oil, and then eventually segue off of using oil altogether with an end to uh, any combustion and new combustion engine vehicles by 2030 and net zero emissions by 2050. Okay. Another thing that I wanted to uh, really let people know is that in Alberta, the number of jobs in clean energy has surpassed the number of jobs in oil extraction. So Alberta has actually been doing this. This story of Alberta making a transition has not been told loudly enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all we need to do is do it twice as fast. Yes, yes. Um, the situation with Alberta and Saskatchewan, I've often felt that uh, if we had courageous leadership, and I'll go back to the wartime analogy, uh, Brock was saying we get out of fossil fuels as soon as we can, and then we'd inject massive investment into those two provinces to turn them into centers of alternative energy. I remember a conversation. Uh, my mother, of course, lived through uh, the Depression and World War II, and it was fascinating. It was just a few years before she passed, and she said something like, you know, the Depression was very hard. No one had any money. Uh, then the war came, and suddenly everyone had money. So this, uh, you know, the, the idea of a, creating a systemic shift and finding the resources. I mean, we certainly found the resources to fight World War II. Uh, you know, and if this situation is of the same poignancy, the same threat, mm-hmm. why can't we do this? Ben? Here's the interesting thing. is You know who's among the people saying that? Um, 35 of the world's largest central banks. <laughs> um, so in a report in... Mm. April, uh, led by the Bank of England and the Bank of France, um, and Canada became the 35th and joined them just recently, um, they fully accepted the IPCC climate reduction targets. They called for 50% reduction in CO2 by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Um, and they said that uh, governments and corporations that fail to recognize this reality will fail to survive. So the question now is whether we're going to believe our own science and our own language, because the talk does nothing. Um, it's the, the transformation that does something, and it takes a level of collaboration that we've never seen before. I hope we'll get to the nonpartisan um, <laughs> aspects of sure. the questions as well. Sure, sure. All right. Now, how could our political parties... Make and by our political parties, I mean all the political parties that are running, make the best use of this campaign as a platform to get exactly what you were saying, Ben, to, to get voters committed to positive green actions and, and dare I say to educate voters about the environment and climate. Like, how could they do that? Maybe a tertiary uh, preliminary question is would they do that? So so one thing that uh and I, this is a partisan suggestion to be nonpartisan. Um, <laughs> okay. so so but the second point in the green party's mission possible is that all 
parties work together and form immediately after the election form an all party war cabinet similar to the ones of Winston Churchill and uh, Mackenzie King. Yeah. Um, so if we could get all parties to commit to that during the election, then that's okay. creating across the board commitment to do something after the election. And if we can get all parties to agree on that and whomever gets in power fails to do that, it was it's it's a pretty damning thing to have all parties agree you need to do something and then not follow through. That said, I agree. We we're, we're not we don't have all the answers on, on how to hit these targets and what we need to do. But the reality is we need every uh, and this is I'm stealing this from someone else, but we need every um, uh, tool in the kit to make this work. And I, I agree, Ben, wholeheartedly that, that we have to do everything we can um, to try and transition off it. But then you have to balance that again with we want to get off of our oil and things like that. But it's as Dylan said, we we have to do that in a way that we don't completely shoot ourselves in the foot as well. It's it's, it's a hard thing. And and. You know, we want we want to get off fossil fuels as soon as possible. We want to do it in a way that that makes sense for for all Canadians. I guess is the best way to put it. Okay, what, now what about party policies here? And there is some material online for some parties. And here I'm horribly dating myself, but of course I remember the era of elections when voters would read in newspapers the various party policies discuss them, and then make their decision about who they're going to vote for on the base of policies. Now, those people have unfortunately been stereotyped now as policy wonks or geeks, and uh, I have the feeling we're a persecuted minority that doesn't get enough support. Uh, But uh, the question I want to come to is... uh, not having a policy, is that going to be a liability? Now, I have checked online. There's quite an extensive liberal policy. Of course, there's quite an extensive green policy online. I did find the NDPs. The Conservatives, as of today's date, June 6th, have not released their policy statement on dealing with climate change. Will this be a problem for for them during the campaign? Will it hurt them on E-Day? The challenge with that um, is what I perceive to be their electoral strategy. And I perceive their electoral strategy as being to win a majority with 37 to 41 roughly percent of the vote nationally. And they just might do it. And they do not need environmental policy to win the 37 to 41 percent that they're aiming at. You mean the geek vote has no strength? Um, I, 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 the problem is, is um, the failure of the liberals to keep their election promise on first past the post because yes. um, the overwhelming majority of Canadians, as has already been said, see this as one of the top two or three issues. Uh, over 80 percent of Canadians at this point think it's extremely serious. The Conservatives are laggards on that, and my view on that one would be that the Liberals have disappointed me, whereas the Conservatives are actively evil on this question. That's a fairly partisan thing to say, but I gather this is a partisan show, so there you go. Um, I think that they could win. I think that they could win with the strategy of not caring and not saying much on the issue. Well, and Dylan, uh, if I can just before we hear from you, how can we up the level of discourse? Because right now I'm a, something of a Twitter addict, and it's not a forum for uh, for discussion. It's a forum for, you know, your, your mother drives shotgun and garbage truck. Yeah, your mother wears army boots. You know, and it's, 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 it's insulting leaders about their hair. I mean, who cares about how they dress uh, whereas we've got some well species threatening issues here dylan i'm sorry go ahead yeah no it's okay i think the one thing that we've seen at least in ontario over the last several months is that in in terms of running without a platform is can be a lit- bit of a liability, and I suspect that's part of the reason that uh, the Ontario legislature just broke for, <laughs> for uh, the longest in in 25 years. Because you see that uh, support for conservatives in Ontario is plummeting through the floor at the moment, and it's very difficult to actually win an election in uh, Canada without the support of Ontario and and Quebec. So. I, th- I think all, all that being said, the, the reason that you've got this pl- 
through the floor numbers uh, in terms of where the conservatives are hiding in Ontario is because in the last provincial election, they didn't run with a platform. They have no mandate to implement anything that they're that they're currently doing. And it's it's proving to be a bit of a liability for the federal conservatives. And so that's kind of the one glimmer of hope I see in terms of this scenario that Ben's just pointed out where they can feasibly win with um, uh, uh, like 35, 37% of the vote. Um, and, and it's the reality of the political and voting system that we're, that we're currently trapped within that, that they can do that. Um, so hopefully at least voters in Ontario can kind of see past that, uh, the, it, and, and, uh, and, uh, come, come to better conclusions, uh, than, than we did last, last June. And I, I think like even right now, uh, you see support surging for uh, for the Green Party, which I, I, I think is great and, and really ac- excellent to see. Um, the um, and, and uh, right now, I think the poll aggregator three thirty eight mm-hmm. um, it has actually the Green Party in a um, uh, a kingmaker situation as far as uh, they're up near ten percent, aren't they? Yeah. Well, no, they're yeah they're sitting at eleven percent or twelve no twelve percent nationally right now. Yeah, eleven point eight in Ontario. Uh, thanks, Brock. Um, and and that's that's I think that's a, kind of a bit of an untold story as far as like a counter movement to uh, this alt right movement we've been seeing seeing a lot of over the last several years. Sorry, sorry, I'm taking. There's a lot to be said about this, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no. sorry. What I was getting at was um, so between the projected seat count for liberals and ndp they're still shy of a majority and so that puts the block in the greens in the in the driver's seat as as far as i can uh see based on the projections from 338 so uh yeah i think it's an interesting scenario but uh something to be wary of as far as what ben said yeah so uh canadians have another strategy that they can use to affect the future they have their vote and they also have their investments. We were talking about playing to the middle class. It's actually in the hands of the middle class, the people who have RRSPs but aren't living on them yet. They are not, they're not retired yet. They can move their money out of fossil fuels and into the clean economy. And if they do that this summer, this fall will look different at the polls. Ah, okay. Brock. So the initial question was basically, do you think the environment is going to be an an election issue? And I think it is. But in this is something that I've talked about with Jen and, and other people extensively as well. Is and and it's funny because you you brought up the whole policy geek thing and 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 that sort of thing. And obviously, everyone in this room is you know at least in some way, very engaged in political policy in Canada. And that said, the reality is, and I'm saying this as somebody who works as full-time as an interior-exterior painter, there's a lot of people who, who do think it's important to vote out there, but are more likely to vote for a person if they show up at their door, or yes. if they... I don't know. Like Obviously, most people have that one issue that they gravitate towards, and that's really important to them, but people are busy with their lives, and um, and, and the reality is, is that we need to find a way to have the right stance on the issues, which is what we're trying to do, and we're, the federal party is working very hard to do that as well, but the reality is, is what... Like, I had one person tell me in the municipal election that they voted for me because they thought my last name was really funny. So, right. so you, know, right. so you right. know what I mean. Like what I'm getting at, and 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 to echo what Dylan was saying, I mean the the provincial conservatives ran without a platform last time. I mean, yeah. I mean, and here we are with them having a majority government. So the reality is, is we're we're going to take the right stances we need to take on the issues. But I'm also going to be out there hitting doors and going to events and doing those kinds of things because that's what wins elections. Right, Ben. I really appreciate um, Gian's point about where people are putting their investments. And I've got something parallel to that, which is um, to stop expecting that 
um, politicians at any level are going to lead the way on this issue. They're not. Mm. They're going to follow where they see the momentum of society going. And so that's why, for example, um, a number of the people sitting in this room right now uh, were on the street with the Extinction Rebellion launch in Peterborough this past weekend, um, where there was, to me, some really creative, effective strategy. It was to do something that was arts-based, that was about um, an atmosphere of festival with giant puppets of life and death involved in also shutting down the traffic in the downtown streets, making chalk art, and there were uh, people from age 2 to 85 there with a sense of invitation and, and not just yelling slogans. And I think that's where some of the shift happens. I think it's all of our job as citizens to cultivate the conditions in which politicians can do better and say more. So this brings up a question. I mean, how can, at the end of the day, all we control is our own individual actions. So how can we as voters move the debate during this campaign from a staunchly partisan adversarial conversation to a place where we can cooperate and, and build solutions together? How does that happen? Could, could I be pleased this time? <laughs> I want to tell a story from Burundi. Sure. Um, Burundi had a smaller genocide than Rwanda had, but hmm. it was the same terrible, terrible situation. And um, after the various... Uh, Sections, people who were fighting factions, uh, had a, um, a peace accord, and the new government came. Well, the transition government had to set up elections. There was massive, massive citizen action to learn about what democracy was. They hadn't had it in, the, in a generation. And they got to the stage where if a politician began a speech in a marketplace and put down the other tribe, mm -hmm. everybody in the marketplace would shout so that their voice telling that person to be quiet on that kind of talk out uh, was louder than the PA system. Mm -hmm. And the politicians had to follow the lead of the people. Sure. It was the mo most... Uh, fair election that had been mm. done in, in Central America, uh, Central Africa, um, you know, in a in couple of generations because of that deep citizen engagement. Mm. So this is where I, I really uh, resonate with, with what uh, Ben had to say a moment ago. Everybody has a voice. They can say to anybody who is backbiting and taking and doing distracting things, uh, they can say, we won't listen to that. They can ask a, a pertinent question like, so what are you doing within your party to improve your party's policy towards climate change? These people can hold people accountable uh, publicly. Could we stay with that analogy and that theme? Because I've been pondering, how should we respond, is the equivalent of the heckler in Burundi market, uh, uh, in a positive sense, how should we respond to the online provocateurs, and sometimes in person, who spew lies instead of debate issues based on science and facts? So, what I've been doing is composing in my mind blessings. Oh, blessings, <laughs> blessings for the people who are trolling. Yeah. And say something like, "Bless you for being involved. Think how nice it would be if you had, if you could say something good that would bring uh, positive things back into your life." Respond wow. with a blessing, then. Of course, that person probably is going to brush off the blessing. But all the other people who see the blessing comment can say to themselves, oh, I can do a better blessing than that. Jen, I have to ask you, how has that worked? <laughs> I'm too busy uh, campaigning, knocking yeah. on doors to yeah. actually spend much time on Twitter. But yeah. that's my approach. Dylan. Picking up on what you just said, like, first of all, like, if you can get off social media, do it. It's <laughs> 
it's like great. It's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I do a little bit of Twitter to promote my blog, but uh, man, life's 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 a lot better <laughs> without it. And, and that goes into kind of the second part of what I got to say in terms of, and is like you're not changing anybody's mind on Facebook or Twitter or Reddit or whatever else, right? Right. You're going on, and if you want to make a difference, go and knock on somebody's door. Yeah. Maybe, which is just what Barack said there a minute ago. And so uh, that's that's the long and short of it. Like, people online uh, are, it's very easy for somebody to segregate themselves into their own little community and not right. have to pay attention to outside voices. And so the best way to combat that is, is to really get out there and actually, like... Uh, work for a cause or something that you believe in. And that goes for things across the board. I, I, I really think that if you want to change somebody's mind, the worst way to do it is online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love these answers uh, so far. And um, I, I often need and take that restorative walk in nature, sometimes with a camera, just taking pictures of uh, life around us. There there are places that have set different rules for online discourse. Um, the Guardian tends to lead the way sometimes on these things. They stopped a couple of years ago publishing anything from deniers. And from my point of view, you know, there was an age at which um, we didn't get to sit at the adult table at family uh, occasions. We had to sit at the kids' table on a phone book. Um, and uh, deniers don't belong in the adult conversation. Um, they need to be uh, kept out of it. And... Uh, uh, similarly, The Guardian just in the last few weeks changed its language on this, changed it from climate change as being their language to climate crisis, breakdown or emergency as being the language. So we've got to do some of that, too. But I particularly like um, some of the stuff about uh, the way that we gather. And there have been some really great experiments. So some of the people, again, around this room have been part of them, of holding meetings in different ways, in which it's all of the time isn't given to the candidates to try to express their one and only right view. Um, it's actually given to the uh, citizens um, to to be in conversation with and looking for common ground rather than division. Right. Do you mind if I make sure, one? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, specifically related to uh, social media. So, the Peterborough this week did a bunch of interviews during the municipal election, and I actually got this asked this question from Taylor Clydesdale, and um, the answer I gave them was that I, I like to tackle my trolls head on, and and what what I meant by that is actually if someone's frustrated, especially when you decide to run for public office, you put a target on your back, and when someone's frustrated at me um one of my, one of my my mentors is christian harvey he's the the um facilitator yes. of the warm room he's a fantastic human being one day we were walking down the street and one of the uh, ladies from the uh warming room uh he asked her said how are you doing today and she she told him where to go and uh he said you know i thought well that was pretty rude and he said you know what it's not about me it's she's got something going on in her life and a lot of times too like even when i was campaigning in the last election come to the door and you know someone's blatantly racist or something like that the the what i hear then is you're concerned about this or that your job or that now if it ends up getting to be excessive i'm saying you know what sir uh, have a nice day and, and walk away because there's only so much you can do but the reality is is you got to realize that people are channeling this anger and things that they wouldn't otherwise say into social media uh for a reason because they do want to express these things and the reality is is you just got to kind of gently meet that and gently catch that that angry pass and what i mean by that is you know it's as simple as saying hey thanks for your comment this is what I understood you were saying, and this is what you're upset about. This is what I plan to do about it, and this is what my party's stance is on it. And a lot of times you still get people that respond back, well, I still think you're an idiot, blah, 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 blah. And at that point, you just stop responding because it's like, you know what? They were not having a real discourse here. But. Okay, during the campaign, uh, there's going to be all candidates meetings and other fora where um, you know, voters can, can get to candidates. How could those situations be used to raise the profile of these issues and more or less tap candidates on their on the shoulder and say, "Look, this in fact this time it's a big deal." What do you have to say about that? Do we have any faith in in those fora, or is are they an exercise in futility? Ben, 
I think there are ways of changing those meetings. I mean, one would be to ask people questions about what they agree with the other candidates about rather than what they disagree with them about. Um, what do you what do you have in common? That sounds like bringing Kool-Aid to a beer party. I mean, how would we fight? <laughs> I'm in support of that, by the way. If yeah, anyone yeah, yeah. at any of the debates wants to ask what we share in common, I would be down. And I've, I've, I've yeah. sat down with the NDP. I've sat down with Mike Skinner. I have plans to sit down with the PPC candidate. I have plans to sit down with the NDP candidate when they come through. And I've reached out to Mary Monsef. So, I, I mean, I'm open to figuring out. Like, the reality is... And hopefully this is the case for everyone. We all want what's best for Peterborough. We all we all want to create the best city for everyone that lives here to live in. And the best way to do that is to work together. No. Ben, Just one other thing. I, I really uh, appreciated something Brock said earlier, too, which, which is one of my favorite answers to hear from a political candidate is, I don't know. Um, and that's the real answer on this question, is that nobody has the solutions that we need at this point. It's going to take an incredible amount of collaboration and experimentation to figure it out. Now, language is so important during a campaign. And I'd just like to... Uh, I, I'm uh, old friends. Uh, we swap emails quite regularly and get on to these long online uh, debates. And I received a reply from one old friend uh, that brings up this point about the importance of language. And this is the quote. Uh, Trump in London yesterday with Piers Morgan on climate change. Open quotes. I believe there's a change in the weather, and I think it changes both ways. Don't forget, it used to be called global warming. That wasn't working. Then it was called climate change. Now it's actually called extreme weather, because with extreme weather, you can't miss. This is a quote from president of the united states um you see how language is being massaged and dylan you're the first person i've heard in a while to refer to the oil extraction sites in alberta as in fact what they are they are tar sands i mean when you look at the stuff they are tar sands right it's sand with this black stuff in it very goopy but that of course is a no-no now in the campaign Will anyone be referring to them as tar sands? Yeah. Jan is nodding her head. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So what do we have to be on guard about in terms of language? Like, what is, what is the accurate phrasing here? I think we need to use very specific language when we're talking about things. So for me, for example, when we're talking about the tar sands, I, 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 again, I understand the financial impact and all those, the jobs and things, but also, I mean, we're flooding an entire northern section of a province with black ooze i mean the tailing ponds are, are disgusting and we have no plan on how to clean them yes, up yes yes uh, i mean my default on this issue when confronted is well that's what barack obama called them and you know he's a smart guy <laughs> big job okay i i think it's so i mean notwithstanding whatever loony over in london saying uh like i i think like when we're talking about language uh, i think it's important to recognize that language isn't static at all either and that as our understanding changes about these things we really need to adapt the language that we use to speak about them um and this is a pretty classic uh example of societal heuristic problem solving and in order to really make a positive uh imp dent in how we go about uh solving the crises that are facing us uh that's what it's going to take it's going to take heuristic problem solving and language is just one par part of that and uh i think if we don't recognize that language it, the language does need to continually evolve and what we say today might change tomorrow then 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 we're in trouble yeah Dylan, I don't remember what heuristic means. <laughs> Thank you, GN. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, it's a pro it's a just a process of learning by by doing, and so we don't know what this we impart on a journey of learning without knowing how to get to the solution or even necessarily what the problem is. So I just want to emphasize that we are already on the right path. It's just not eighty percent of our life yet it's 
10 to 20% of our life in a few places, a little bit more than that. And we actually do have the beginning of most of the solutions. We just haven't put all of our heart into it yet. And the, the clean energy technology that we use today will evolve over the next 30 years, and it, won't, it will look different 30 years from now, but we don't have to worry about what that clean technology is going to look like 30 years from now. We have to use what we have to the best of our ability, and as we do that, it will evolve into better and better things. Okay. In this studio, about five or six weeks ago, uh, in fact, it was during the uh, Trent Radio fundraiser, the middle of April, a fund- fundraising weekend, we had a program uh, that featured uh, one hour with four high school environmental activists. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was astonished at how seriously they took this issue and their knowledge base and how articulate they were. What, you know, what can we say to youth like that who are, and these people were 15, 16, there might be, oh, there's one 17, one 18 year old. What can we say to them to give them hope, to make them feel that the adult world has not lost its mind? They should skip class and come to the all-candidates meetings <laughs> right. and ask those questions and right. you, be articulate. And right. candidates facing young people who are articulate, they have to sit, tell the truth. Interesting. Ben? Yeah, I mean, we have this wonderful uh, youth leadership and sustainability program locally that's been a, a whole semester. That's, oh, Cam that's Douglas. With Cam Douglas. Yeah, right, right. Um, 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 and again, I, a number of people around this studio right now have been uh, standing with the youth at the Fridays for Future gatherings in front of City Hall every Friday from 12 to 1 p.m. Um, show the hell up. I mean, uh, we they're telling us as adults that they need us to show up. That's Greta Thunberg's message right now. I take a tremendous amount of hope and inspiration from that process. Um, it's easy to forget that the first day that Greta Thunberg sat alone uh, without even the support of her parents in front of the Swedish parliament is less than one year ago. And that's spread to over 2,000 cities around the world and millions of people involved. And all of it is, of course, still just talk. It's, but it's having its effect. Um, and add to that... The first message of Extinction Rebellion, their first uh, of their very short list of demands, is simply tell the truth. Um, tell the truth about uh, the state of things. I sometimes bring poems into your studio, and this is the first <laughs> few lines of, of one by a guy named Drew Dellinger. What did you do once you knew? Um, and I, I think poetry and Go art on. and music are great ways of, of responding to some of this. And he just says, it's 3.23 in the morning, and I'm awake because my great-great-grandchildren won't let me sleep. My great-great-grandchildren, ask me in dreams, what did you do when the earth was unraveling? Well, and on that note, thank you so much, uh, Dylan, Dylan, uh, Brock, Jan, and Ben for coming in. Any feedback, please let me know. Uh, You can send me a note at bill.templeman at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Until June 20th, this is Bill.